And we're in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. And we'll read today verses 1 to 16. Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 16. There it says, When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat, if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong, and he will plead their case against you. Apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not hold back discipline from a child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today, Lord, that you might give to us this wisdom that is so clearly displayed and expressed for us uh, here in the book of Proverbs. Lord, may we learn uh, how it is to live a life that is pleasing to you, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, Father, we pray that you guide us, you lead us, you teach us in all things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Here, Proverbs uh, 23, these are broken up into these uh, sections, uh, two to three verse Uh, dealing with a a main topic or a main theme. The first of these is verses 1 to 3. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat. If you are a man of great appetite, do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Here, oftentimes when one is called to dine with the ruler, the main point of the meeting is not the eating of food, but rather the discussing of important matters, important topics. Yet if a person is consumed, overwhelmed with this desire for food and for drink, for these fine things that he has laid before him there in the king's house, he's going to lose focus on why he's there. He's going to begin to uh, loosen himself, especially if there's wine involved and he begins to drink and begins to eat. Quickly, he can descend into a state of stupidity, of stupor, and begin making a fool of himself by being a glutton and by becoming a drunkard there in the presence of the king. And so the main point of consideration here is that you must exercise self-control. There must be moderation. You must be content. You must have a proper perspective of what is taking place here. There must be occasion of why you are here and what is the occasion for these things. And there are great dangers in being in the presence of a ruler or being in the presence of a king. And if you begin to loosen and be relaxed and speak freely, well, maybe you say something against him, against his policies, against one of his officials, and then his wrath is turned against you. So you must be very careful in the way that you handle and the way that you deal with these things. 
He says, put a knife to your throat. Not literally, but he means it in a figurative sense. Put a knife to your throat so as to restrain your appetite. Again, many people, they are given to this, uh, their appetites, their desires, especially when fine food is before them. And there at the ruler's house, the finest foods prepared by the best chefs, the best cooks, are going to be there set before you. And the temptation is going to be to indulge in these delicacies that are there set before you. However, he's saying you need to exercise self-control, moderation, consideration, realize what is going on, what is taking place, and don't be overcome with all of the splendor and the refinement that you find there in the ruler's house. Better to put a knife to your throat, especially, he says, if you're a man of great appetite, that there are those who love food. They love food and drink, and that they are consumed with these things, and their God is their belly. He says they must be very careful when they're in these situations. Now, if this is true before earthly kings and noblemen, that we need to be very careful when we sit at their table, then also it is even more true when we come to the table of the Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, just as we partook of the Lord's Bible study, this is the table of the Lord, and we must be very cautious and consider what we are doing when we participate in the Lord's Supper, so that we are not bringing judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. Actually, in our passage that we just read, and the one that we read every week, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the occasion for his instructions, his admonitions given to the church, is that when they come together to take the Lord's Supper, he cannot commend them for what they are doing. Because when they come together, they are actually drinking and eating judgment and condemnation to themselves. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for better, but for the worse. Right? You're coming together You're doing what God has called you to do, but you're not benefiting from it. And actually, it's not for your betterment. It's not for your good. It's actually worse for you because of the manner in which you are doing it. Now, the solution here isn't to stop doing it, but it is to stop doing it the wrong way and to start doing it the correct way. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There are divisions there that are existing in the church, and this isn't something he's commending them for. It's not a good thing. When we come to the table of the Lord, isn't the Lord's Supper a sign of our unity together, that we are all part of the body of Christ? So how, when we are coming together in this symbol, in this institution, this ordinance, which is supposed to be a sign of our mutual faith, our mutual salvation, our mutual interest in Christ, something that is binding us up in unity, he says, yet here there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, these divisions are not without purpose. God uses them in order to prove those who are genuine. However, in terms of the church, we are not to pursue and needlessly promote divisions and controversies in this way. It's not good for there to be this type of disunity in the body of Christ. He says in 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. The one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? He says, Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So here, these divisions that are existing is really a division between the rich and the poor in the way that they are participating in the Lord's Supper. And they're not doing it thinking of one another. They're doing it with selfish motives uh, in this way. And so he doesn't commend them, but he condemns them of such things. Well, again, if our approach to the king's table on earth is to be one of self-control, of sobriety, of an understanding of what we are doing, then how much more should it be when we approach the table of the Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords? Verse 4. He says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Here, this is a temptation common to men, common to men in the world, and common across all generations. And this is the desire for riches, for money, for wealth. He says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Now, in this, of course, what he means is not that we shouldn't work or that we shouldn't labor or that we shouldn't provide for our families. Of course, we are called to do such things. But it is this inordinate desire, this love of money, that so many people are possessed with. So that that is all that they can think. This is all that's on their mind. And everything in their life must accommodate this pursuit of riches, of wealth, and of money. And that's why he's saying, don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Work hard, be wise, be frugal. And if God gives you an increase, and if God grants to you wealth, then receive it from the Lord, use it for good, use it for his glory, and for the good of your neighbor. But if your goal in life is to become rich, is to make a lot of money, then that is a very pernicious and a very dangerous goal to have for one's life. And it leads to many obstacles to faith and to godliness. And so he says, cease your consideration of it. Why? Because when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Right? Money comes many times very quickly. And then as quickly as it comes, it is taken away as well. And there are forces, factors outside of us that we cannot control that can lead to the dispersing and the loss of wealth. So if we spend all of our time and our energy and our effort, we neglect our family, we neglect our faith, we neglect the things of God, we neglect the church all throughout our life in order to pursue wealth. And then we amass this fortune or whatever it is that we have. And then there's an overthrow in the government and some new faction takes up and then they take everything away from us. So then we've spent all of this time and energy and effort building and amassing this fortune for what reason? To the neglect of our soul, to the neglect of our family, to the neglect of the church of God. This is how quickly these things can come or go. And even if we maintain our wealth throughout the course of our life, eventually what's going to happen to all of us? We're all going to die. And when we die, what happens to that wealth? We don't take it with us. Naked we come into the world, and naked we will depart. We will take no wealth with us into the life to come. And yet, this desire, this pursuit, grips the hearts of many, many men. Right? This is what they want more than anything else, is this desire for riches and for wealth. It is a sin, a desire, that pierces many people through. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Verses 3 to 10, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. 
says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abuse of language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of gain, of great gain, when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs." There, again, it is the love of money. Those who desire, who want more than anything else, to get rich. There are many temptations that they are opening themselves up to. Many snares that come upon them, that entrap them. In in this case, he says, because of this, there are some who are even wandering from the faith. They forsake their former faith, and they pierce themselves through with many pains, with many griefs. They are struck and afflicted both in this life and in the life to come, all because of this inordinate desire for wealth. In Psalm 62.10, he tells us there that if wealth increases, do not set your heart upon it. There is nothing wrong with wealth increasing, right? This actually should be a part of our life. As we work, we should build up our estate. There should be an increase of these things in the natural progression of life and in the natural progression, typically in the workplace as we get promotions, as we get more responsibilities, then we make more money, right? As we have longevity there, there is an increase in wealth. But don't put your trust in it. Don't put your confidence in riches. But rather, we should put our trust and our hope and our confidence with God. Those things can be here today and gone tomorrow, both in relationship to this present life. One can be very wealthy one day, and the next day he could be a complete pauper. It could all be taken away from him. And if his hope is in his riches, then where will he be at when all that money is gone? But then also in terms of this life to the life to come. It is here in this life, but then at death it is gone. And we do not carry it with us into the life to come. And if we are basing our standing before God based upon our riches and our wealth, then we enter into the life to come with nothing. We have absolutely nothing to commend us to God. Verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. Here, don't eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. If you know a man to be a selfish man, one who is consumed with himself, has no care, no thought, no concern to anyone else, if he invites you over for dinner, if he is giving to you the appearance of graciousness, of generosity, of liberality, well, you know that he's not genuine in this because he's proven himself to be a selfish, a worthless, and a wicked man. So if he has you over, don't eat his bread. Don't eat it and don't desire his delicacies because as he thinks within himself, so he is. 
His true nature is what he is on the inside. And he is a selfish man in his heart, though outwardly he gives the appearance to you of being a generous man. A generous man. He says to you, eat and drink. He sets the food and the drink before you. He says, here, I want you to have these things. I'm giving these things to you. Eat them and drink them. Yet, in the heart, he's still a very selfish man. Right? He doesn't do this out of true love, out of true generosity, out of true friendship. He either has some ulterior motive or he's doing it in a begrudging manner. Right? Because the occasion compels him to do so, but he's not doing it with sincerity because he actually loves you and cares for you. Right? That's why he says his heart is not with you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. His heart isn't there with you. His heart is with his money. And he's thinking about how much money he's wasting by having to give to you food and drink. Well, when you come to the realization that this is the kind of man that he is, you're going to vomit up the morsel that you have eaten. The food that you have eaten, he, again, he doesn't mean it literally. He means it that it's going to sour the whole experience. This man and his attitude will spoil this meal that you've eaten so that it becomes nauseous to you. And you'll want to vomit up the morsel that you have eaten and your compliments that you've bestowed upon him. How kind he is, how considerate, how generous, how liberal of a man that he was by sharing and giving things to you, you've wasted all these things because he doesn't deserve to have them for as his heart is, so he truly is. Deuteronomy 15 verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 9. This is the kind of man we're talking about. It says, Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin. You shall give generously to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all of your undertaking." For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. There, this seventh year of remission. Right? Whenever you see that this seventh year is approaching, and you realize that if I give to my poor brother, then I'm not going to get anything back in return. There, a begrudging person, a stingy, selfish man, will not want to give to the poor. He's not moved with compassion with kinsmanship, with love for his brother. He's moved because of his own selfish interests. He would give to him if he knew that he could get six years of indenture servitude from him. But now he sees he's only going to get one year or a half a year. He's not moved to help him at all. He says, don't do that. But instead, be generous and your heart shall not be grieved when you give. When you give, you should not do it in a begrudging way. What kind of giver does God love? the cheerful giver, the one who gives freely, cheerfully, out of love of God and love of neighbor. That is the one that we should be. So we should neither want to participate in these kind of selfish acts with selfish men, nor do we want to be like that, right? We ought to be the generous man. Verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. 
Here, this is a fool who has proven himself repeatedly by his obstinacy that this is his true condition. Right? He cannot mean that we never speak to a fool because all of us in our natural state were once foolish. Right? We are separated from the knowledge of God. So all men in the natural state are fools. And if no Christian ever speaks to foolish men, then no one is ever going to be converted. Right? It is only because someone preached the gospel to us, someone was kind enough to open up the wisdom of God to a foolish man that we were converted and that we were saved. This is the means that God used. Here, he means a foolish person who has proven himself over a course of time to be an obstinate to be a rebellious, to be a person who blaspheme, who hates the truth, right? He says, don't speak in the hearing of this kind of a person because you know he's going to despise your wisdom and your words. He's not going to listen to you. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your words. Don't waste your effort on such a one. But instead, just walk away from him and don't get into these endless debates and arguments where you're bickering with these kinds of people. This is the same as Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, when Jesus instructs his disciples to not cast their pearls before the swine or give to dogs what is holy. Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Again, when one proves himself to be this over the course of time, over repeated obstinate rejections of the truth, there comes a point where you no longer to this man what is holy, right? You don't throw the, the pearl, which is the gospel. You don't give it to this man. You don't give to him instruction and reproofs and training in righteousness because you know that he's not going to listen. He's going to trample these things. He's going to blaspheme the name of our Lord and Savior. And then he may turn and bite you. Right? He might turn and slug you in the face. You never know what's going to come with a person like this because they're unpredictable. They're very violent. Uh, they love to fight and bicker. This is the kind of people that they are. Titus chapter 3 also speaks of one such person, a divisive man. Those who have a morbid interest in controversies. Titus chapter 3, verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law, Right? There are those who love to argue and fight over these times of things, things that are unprofitable and that are worthless. Right? That they never want to talk about Christ. They don't want to talk about salvation. They don't want to talk about substitutionary atonement. They don't want to talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the aspects and components of the gospel. Those are not the things that are on their mind. Instead, what's on their mind are disputes about the law genealogies, strife, contentions, these types of things. But what profit is there in debating and arguing endlessly hour after hour about these kinds of things? He says it's unprofitable, it is worthless. So if there is a person given to such debates, he says warn them to quit being a factious man. 
a divisive man, right? Because these are the kinds of topics that breed quarrels, contentions, factions within the body of Christ. And when this leaven becomes into the body, then it begins to leaven the whole lump. And the factions and the quarrels begin to spread from one person to another. So he says, warn him once, then twice, and then after that, have nothing more to do with him because he is a perverted man. He's self-condemned. And you might as well talk to that wall over there than talk to this person because you're going to get about as far with that wall as you are with this obstinate man. So just be done with it and move on. And don't feel the need to continue engaging them in these kinds of arguments. Don't speak in their hearing. Verses 10 to 11. 10 to 12. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. There, do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. The ancient boundaries, the boundary markers, are those markers that distinguish one man's property from another, right? The property that belonged to this family and to this man, right, was separated from the property of his neighbor by these boundary markers, Well, if you move the boundary markers that were set and established in ancient times and you move it 10 foot, 20 foot, 30 foot over onto your neighbor's property, then you are going to take possession of, you're going to use your neighbor's property as if it is your own. And given over a course of time, people will begin to believe and to think that his property is actually your property. So this is a covetous desire for your neighbor's land. Or, he says, the fields of the fatherless. If there is one who is fatherless, and he has his field, and his father has died, but he's still in a state of childhood, or he's a very young man, easily taken advantage of, don't covet his field. Don't see this as an opportunity for you to go and to seize what belongs to your neighbor. There needs to be this recognition of of of, uh, private property, of private ownership of land, and not look at our neighbor in ways that are covetous, where we're always thinking of, how can I seize and take what belongs to my neighbor? Again, he's not talking about the lawful, legal, rightful purchasing of property or land, where one man, in full knowledge and agreement, chooses to sell his land at a fair price to another man, right? If that's what's taking place and it's all above water and it's all done in the open and everyone knows what's going on, then that's good and fine. But in this case, they're using either deception, moving the uh, boundary markers, or they're taking advantage of a vulnerable situation in order to benefit and profit themselves. It's selfish. It's self-centered. And it's just this desire to acquire more and more, right? People love riches and they love land and they want to acquire many of these kinds of things in order to build up their own estate. He says, don't do these things because their redeemer is strong and he will plead their case against you. They have a redeemer and that redeemer is going to come and he's a very strong one. And when he rises, he's going to plead the case against you. So understand and realize that you're not dealing exclusively with the fatherless. You're dealing with the fatherless, but you're also dealing with their Redeemer. And when their Redeemer comes, you're going to have to answer to him. And he is a very strong man and will be able to subdue you. Now, the question is, who is their Redeemer? 
Well, Jeremiah chapter 50 tells us who their Redeemer is. It is the Lord himself who will rise up and defend the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan against those who seek to take advantage of them. Jeremiah 50, 33 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The sons of Israel are oppressed, and the sons of Judah as well. And all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will vigorously plead their case, so that he may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. Here, in this case, the children of Israel are the ones who are oppressed. They are the father, the ones who have been taken captive. And it is the inhabitants of Babylon who are their captors. However, ultimately, the Lord will rise up against the Babylonians and he will redeem his people. And just as he did for them as a nation, so he also does here in Proverbs 23 for the fatherless, for the widow, for the the orphan. These ones God has a special care for and God will rise up and defend them whenever they are exploited and taken advantage of. Whenever people seek to take advantage of the righteous poor and of the believing widow and the orphan, God will rise up in their case. And many times in the Bible, the believer, the child of God, is compared to such a one in a vulnerable state, to the widow, to the orphan, to the fatherless. And it is God who is our Redeemer, who watches over us, who cares for us, who rises up to defend our case. Verse 13, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Here, proper discipline of the children. He says, do not hold it back in the home. Right? There must be some standard of obedience, of expectation that is suitable to the children. Right? The home cannot be chaotic. It cannot be lawless without any rules, without any expectations, without any standards of discipline there for the children. And in order to enact that discipline, there are times when the rod must be used. But here, if you strike him with the rod, he's not going to die. Right? He's not talking about beating them. He's not talking about bruising them, bloodying them, making them unconscious, bringing them to the point of death. Obviously, that's not the case. He means it in the sense of proper discipline. When a child receives discipline with the rod, a spanking or whatever it is used on the backside, is that going to kill the child? It's not going to kill the child. It's not even going to permanently damage the child. Typically, that discipline lasts maybe for a minute or two, the sting of it, and then it's gone. And there's no side effects. There's no repercussions that are left there on the child. However, you get the point across. And they understand, and they begin to make a connection that when I disobey, then this momentary pain is inflicted upon me. I don't want that pain on my backside. Therefore, I'm not going to disobey. And it works wonderful in the home so that everything is orderly and there's not chaos. And the children know the proper boundaries. They know their expectations. They know how to honor and respect and to love their parents and to give to them the obedience that is due. Yet there is this desire many times in parents to indulge their children and to give them whatever they want, and to never say no to them, and to never discipline them, and to never do these types of things. But when that happens, are you actually loving your children? They say that they are, right? They think that it is motivated by love, 
that it's this compassion within them, but it is a misguided love that does not seek the welfare of the child. They think, I could never do this because I don't want to hurt my child. Well, nobody wants to hurt their child, but you're not going to kill them if you give them proper discipline. But if you fail to give them proper discipline, what can be the case? Well, they can go to hell. That's what he says in verse 14. If you strike him with the rod, you will rescue his soul from Sheol, from death, from the lake of fire. Because an unruly child who does not honor his father and mother, does not obey his father and mother, has no boundaries or limitations, but is left to do whatever he wants after his own heart, the likelihood of that child ever becoming a believer and ever believing the gospel is slim to none. Right? It is the duty of the parents, though again, ultimately, it depends on the will of God, yet insofar as our responsibility is concerned, it is the duty of the parents to train their children in the fear and knowledge of God, to make them wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And God, oftentimes, more times than not, He honors the efforts of Christian parents who raise their children in the fear of the Lord by granting to those children salvation, conversion, right? This is the way it is many times. The faith is passed from one generation down to the next. And this is part of God's goodness and kindness to us. And one of the components that is a part of that is proper discipline in the home. And if that discipline is not there, it can have serious spiritual ramifications for the children. Not only for the life to come, but even for this life as well. Because if they won't obey the, the parents, then they're not going to obey their teachers. They're not going to respect and obey any authority that is over them. They're not going to be able to get along in the workplace with a boss telling them what to do one day. Uh, I mean, all of us at some point, we have to learn how to submit and to obey and to do what is right because someone tells us to do so. Right? All of us have people who are in authority over us whether it's in society or in the home or in the church. And part of the Christian life is knowing how to submit to proper authorities, ultimately to the authority of God. But a person who is rebellious and who will never do that, how will he submit to God, ultimate authority, if he won't even submit to the authority of his parents? So it is the duty of the parents to teach their children these truths, these valuable, timeless truths. It's also for their own sanity. Because who wants to live in a house with a bunch of unruly brats and teenagers who are worthless and, and horrible? No one wants to live in that type of a, of a situation, but rather to have an ordered, happy home. That is the goal that we should desire and that we should pursue. Now, in this, of course, he doesn't mean that all we do is beat the child with the rod. He doesn't mean that for every minor infraction that we bring it to that point. Nor does he mean that we put expectations on our children that are unreasonable, that are impossible for them to meet. Right? We have to exercise wisdom, prudence, right? and that's the same in the church as well. Can we expect the new convert to have the same level of maturity as someone who's been a Christian for 40 or 50 years? No, of course not. Can you expect a 7-year-old child to be able to do the same things as a 21-year-old? or as the parents, as the father? Of course not. It's impossible. They don't have the ability to do so. So it has to be within means, within reason, right? Within proper expectations of what there should be. And then we need to know how to discern 
you know, what are those things that we draw hard, fast lines? And what are those things that we give our children breathing room and we let them figure things out here and there and we're not constantly breathing down their neck, right? There are two extremes that must be avoided. The one is the indulging of children where there is no discipline and the other is a constant carping and breathing down their neck and nitpicking every single thing that they do so that they always are frustrated, they're never affirmed, and they can never please the parents. In both cases, it's typically going to end in the same result. Because the one who indulges the child, the child will be lawless, and when he leaves the home, he'll be lawless. The one who rules with an iron fist over his child, eventually, what's that child going to do? He's going to rebel. And when he gets out of the home, he's going to go crazy and go wild. And most of the time, they both end up lawless in their behavior. So we need to use wisdom and knowledge, and it takes understanding, it takes humility, it takes prayer, it takes wisdom and talking to other people to understand how to do these things. All of this we must apply in the raising of our own children. Okay, then verses 15 and 16. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice. When your lips speak what is right. When the child is properly trained and properly raised, and the son begins to arrive to adulthood, and there are clear indications that the wisdom of the father has been passed down to the son. When he sees that the wisdom, the training, the instruction that he's given to his child, right, it is the duty of the parents to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And when the father and the mother begin to see that the fear and admonition of the Lord that they've trained their children in, that it's taking root within them, and they see that in their child there is this wisdom of God that resides in his heart. If your heart is wise and your lips speak what is right, the child is believing these things, is holding on to these things, incorporating these things into his own life. As the child grows and matures and reaches into adulthood, that this faith, the wisdom of salvation, is obviously manifested in their life, then does that not bring great joy to the parents? What greater joy can a Christian father or a Christian mother have than to see their children walking in the truth? To see the faith that is found in them also found in their children, to know that their children are also children of God and that they are their brothers and sisters in Christ and that they also are heirs of eternal life. And he says, if I see this in you, if your heart is wise, if your lips speak what is right, then my heart is going to be glad and my innermost being is going to rejoice. This should be the primary objective of all Christian parents is that their children would be believers, that they would be true Christians. Not that they would be wealthy, not that they would be successful, not that they they would be well-known and famous and rich and powerful, not that they would go to the greatest colleges and have the finest degrees and all of the things that so many parents desire for their children. Again, not that there isn't a place for some of those things, but all of those things must be secondary to this. The primary goal, that we have as parents is to train our children in the fear and knowledge of God. And when we see that fear and knowledge of God taking root and uh, residing in our children, 
then that should make our joy complete. We should rest satisfied with such a knowledge. There should be rejoicing in our heart to see that our children believe the gospel and that they believe these truths. Third John, third John, verse four. Now he's speaking this to the church that he calls his children, but it also would be applicable to parents as well. Third John four. I have more than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. This should be our joy. The great joy of any parent is to see his children, and if God grants him long life, to see his grandchildren, perhaps even his grandchildren, to see them walking in the truth. Also, that should be the great desire of ministers in the church, to see that the people are walking in the truth, that they are consistent and sincere in their faith, that there's no open scandalous sins that they are giving themselves and indulging in, but that they are walking in Christ Jesus. This is what we should desire in our home, in our churches, in our families, wherever we are, that these things would be true, and only the Lord can bring it about. So may we then pray to the Lord and pray that he might make these things true in our homes and grant to us believing households, right? Christian homes, right, where Parents and children and grandchildren are all rooted in a common faith in Christ. So let's pray to that end, and then we will be dismissed. But also, I wanted to mention one other thing, and that is, in light of that, uh, I was talking to uh, Vance Martin this week, uh, who used to be uh, a member here and used to lead our music, and he asked that we would pray for his sons. Uh, he has two sons, uh, and both of them are are not walking in this way. Uh, one of them more openly in scandalous sins. The other one is more sober and uh, stable in his life. And it seems that there is some uh, pr- pr- progress there. Uh, but please to pray for them. And then we want to pray the same for all of our children as well. So let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord. Again, we're grateful for the wisdom Lord, that you have revealed to us that makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we desire that this faith would be manifested in our life. Lord, that this great salvation would be clearly seen. Lord, that we would, Lord, that there would be no known uh, areas in our life where we're living in obstinate rebellion against you. Lord, knowing that we're not perfect and that we're all growing and progressing. But Lord, we pray that whatever there is in us, Lord, whatever areas, Lord, where there is weakness and where there is sin, that Lord, you might uh, sanctify us in these areas and that we might walk in the truth more and more. Lord, may there be a consistency in our faith and Lord, in what we profess and in what we live, that our words and our deeds might be in unison together. Father, we pray as well that you might grant to us uh, Christian homes. Lord, where there is a, a unity in the home, not just in a common descent, Lord, not just in a common occupation, but Lord, that there might be a unity in spiritual things, where father and mother and children all share this common bond of faith, that there are all believers in 
that all of them are living and walking before you in fear and trembling and in godliness. Lord, this is what we desire more than anything else. Lord, that you might save our children, and that you might save our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, and that, Lord, the faith that is found in us, that it might be passed down from generation to generation. Lord, we ask that you would give to us this mercy, Lord, this favor and this blessing, knowing that without you, Lord, neither we would ever be saved nor our children or any of our posterity. Lord, it is impossible with us, but we know with you all things are possible. So, Father, we pray that your loving kindness, your mercy might be thousands of generations, Lord, in our family, and that you may raise up from among us, Lord, many children who become oaks of righteousness before you. Father, we do pray today, especially for uh, Brother Vance. Lord, we thank you for him. Lord, we pray uh, that you might be with him and sustain him, especially with his disease. Lord, that has uh, begun to impact him more and more uh, in these later years of his life. Lord, please be with him and we pray that you preserve him, Lord, that the effects of, of his disease, Lord, that they may be mitigated and not so strongly seen within him. But Lord, most of all, we pray for his children. Lord, we pray for his two sons. Lord, we ask that you might grant to them repentance that leads to life. Lord, that you might use Vance in their life, Lord, to continue to love them and to continue preaching the gospel to them. And that they might uh, believe and turn from their sin and do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, please be with him, and we pray that you would grant to him this blessing, and that, Lord, you might comfort him as he is saddened and heartbroken, Lord, over this reality with his children. Lord, be with us all as we go from here today. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. Lord, bless us this week, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.